John chapter 18. As we continue our study through the Gospel according to John this morning, and we are very near to the crucifixion. I'm going to begin with a sidetrack, if you'll bear with me. I've been away for a couple of weeks. Some significant events have transpired in our nation in that short period of time. Some of you will remember when we started this series in October of 2016. (laughs) And I know I shouldn't be surprised, but I still am amazed how the Holy Spirit has led through this study, how we have landed certain portions of Scripture that are lining up exactly with what's happening in our nation. We are seeing that now. There are many similarities to the events that we find on Jesus' trial 2,000 years ago that are lining up with what we are witnessing today. If you are tuned into what's happening, then some of these things just jump off the page at you and you can't help but see them. If you're not tuned into what's happening, get tuned in. I hope you care about your country. I've already made mention of one such parallel in relation to how these religious Jews are trying to get a lot done under the cloak of darkness in the overnight hours on the night that Jesus was arrested to prevent an uproar from the people and how that was eerily similar to what we saw happen after our election that night. Something took place. And I've been praying about how much I should highlight these things or if I should just leave them alone. It can be very challenging to know how much to preach politics. By the way, we are not a 501c3. Thank you, preacher. I can say what I want and the government cannot get on to me for it. So if there's anybody in here that's going to get sideways with me, you can report if you want. It's not going to make any difference legally. Amen. Amen. So what do you do about these things? Do you highlight them or not? Many say a preacher should leave such things alone. And I will wholeheartedly agree that our focus ought to be zeroed in on Christ. But I also think we are in a unique situation in America. And I say this because there's never been a nation like the United States. In all of humanity. We are unique in that we inherited a nation that was once free. A Roman captain asked the Apostle Paul if he was a Roman. Paul said yes. And in Acts 22, 28, the chief captain answered, with a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, but I was freeborn. We were born free into a nation unlike any other. We were not born in a nation where we never had any rights to begin with. But we have a United States Constitution that guarantees, or is supposed to guarantee us, certain unalienable rights. And in that document, we find the First Amendment to our Constitution. By the way, put there because of a Baptist. And it says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And we are in a unique situation, and because we were born free, we have a decision to make. 
Are we going to fight for those freedoms or will we watch as our nation is taken over by those who hate our founding and hate our founding documents? So what are we to do as God's people? Are we expected to turn a blind eye with the understanding that we are merely pilgrims and strangers upon this earth? Or are we to fight for our rights as Americans with the understanding that a free nation means less hindrance to the gospel going forth? It can be quite the conundrum in one sense because one can easily make the biblical case that the Word of God has spread further and with more effectiveness under persecution than it has under freedom. We can make the argument that having been blessed with so much freedom, we have forsaken the God that gave us those freedoms. We have forsaken the God that has blessed us with these things. And really, we are no different than early Israel. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 32.15, But Jeshuron waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. When the Bible says that somebody is made fat, it is the blessings that we have. And what God is saying is, I gave you all these blessings, and then you rejected me. And in all of our freedoms and in all of our blessings, we have forsaken God who made us a nation. We have lightly esteemed the rock of our salvation. And what is being evidenced today in America is nothing more than reaping what we have sown. The Bible says God will not be mocked. Now it's also challenging to know how hard to press certain issues from the pulpit because we don't find Jesus fighting against the Roman government. Jesus never led an insurrection. But then we could also rightly say that our nation would not exist had there not been a people who rose up against tyranny. I would point out that a major difference between when we were founded and now is that people fought for this nation. They were largely godly men and women and they fought under the banner and appeal to heaven. That was actually a flag that they carried. I don't know how many of you know your American history. But it was a white flag with a tree... And below it is said, an appeal to heaven. Understanding that if this war is going to be won, it's going to be because we, as God's people, are looking to Him for help. I'm not sure how many would stand for our freedoms as an appeal to heaven today. The truth is, had we not departed from the living God, we would not find ourselves in this position. I'm afraid too many would only fight under the banner of don't tread on me which was also an American revolutionary flag and slogan. And I'm not against, don't tread on me. It was a rally cry against limited government, and there's one thing we need, it's less government. But let's not forget God. So what are we to do? Well, this church is one of the most patriotic churches you'll find. We believe in God and country. For those who sat under Pastor Williams' preaching, I... Think you know what his opinion would be. And if you have been in this church in 2020, you now know what my opinion is. And we are approaching, or we are already at, a major crossroad in our nation's history. Yes. Gone are the days of bipartisanship. 
Listen, I challenge you to go back, you young people, go back and listen to speeches from JFK. You would think he was a conservative Republican today. He was a Democrat. Gone are the days of bipartisanship. We now have very... We have two very conflicting ideologies which cannot cohabitate for long. I want you to get that. In our nation, we have two diametrically opposed ideologies and they cannot cohabitate for long. Something is going to give. Where will you stand? And I give you this detour because I'm not sure how much to address these things from our text, these political happenings in our day. But please understand that as your pastor, I believe that I cannot forever remain silent on these issues. Amen. And the reason is, I don't believe you can separate spiritual from what is taking place. You say, why do you say that? Because the Bible says there's spiritual wickedness in high places. That's a governmental term in your Bible. And there's spiritual wickedness taking place. And we must not be ignorant of Satan's devices. And for me personally, the blood which secured our freedoms... 240-something years ago, still cries out from the grave. And let me be absolutely clear that I'm not advocating violence at this time. I say, God forbid, that our nation should be engaged in another civil war. We lost 620,000 people in our nation's civil war, and we do not want to see what would happen in 2021. But in this hour, we should earnestly and fervently cry out for true revival. Amen. Amen. You say, what can I do? You can pray. Amen. Amen. You say, well, I'm going to pray Psalm 109.8. Let his days be few and another take his office. <laughs> you better be careful with that prayer. Because yeah. that snake behind the soon-to-be president is worse than the first. Yeah. A socialist as vice president of our nation. You hear what I'm saying? You find me one socialist nation where the gospel went forth the way it has under capitalism. You're not going to find it. May God help us as we enter a year filled with so much uncertainty. So we must pray. We must strive to reach the lost for Christ. That's the hope of our nation. Our hope is not in the White House. I'm thankful when the White House lines up with biblical principles, but that's not where our hope is. Our hope must be in God and in the church house. And if enough people are reached for Christ, then this nation would return to her godly heritage. Because people who are in Christ can't help but walk with God. Now with that out of the way, let's go back to our study through John. And we'll see some more things here. We have watched as Jesus was brought before Annas and then Caiaphas, the high priest, The Jewish council had claimed they had found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. But remember, while the Jews could spontaneously stone a man, they had lost their right or given up their right through their own judicial system to have capital punishment. And so they're going to have to take Jesus bound before Pilate, a Roman governor, in order that Jesus can be put to death by the Romans. Not to mention, Jesus said that He would be crucified. The only way that's going to happen is not through stoning, not through the Jewish judicial system, but it's going to have to go through the Gentile system that they can put Jesus on a cross. Jesus already said He was going to be crucified. 
The religious Jews back then, and even still today, believed that the Messiah would bring Israel out from under Gentile dominance and restore the kingdom to Israel. They only saw the Messiah as a politically conquering earthly king, and not one that will die a sinner's death to usher in a spiritual kingdom. Therefore, in their minds, if they can persuade the Romans to crucify Jesus, then it would show all of Judea and all of Israel that Jesus was not deity, but that He was merely a man and that He was a fraud and that He was no Messiah at all. And they were right in their assumption. We'll probably come back to this thought later on in the coming weeks, but how many of you remember back there in Luke 24, there's two people walking back from Jerusalem after everything took place. Uh, They're walking back to Emmaus. And as they're walking, they're talking about what had been taking place with Jesus being crucified and all of that had taken place that week. And they don't know that Jesus has resurrected yet. And as they're walking along back to Emmaus, Jesus walks up beside them. They still don't know it's Him. And they're talking and Jesus comes up and He says, Why are you sad? One of them, who was named Cleopas, says, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? Hast thou not known the things which are come to pass in these days? This is what they asked Jesus. And I love Jesus' response. Jesus goes, what things? (laughs) It just cracks me up. Do you not know what's been taking place? No, what? (laughs) And they say to Jesus, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. And then they said this in Luke 24, 21. This is where I'm going with this. They said, but we trusted that it had been he which would have redeemed Israel. They were looking for that Messiah to be a political deliverer, an earthly deliverer. And it was still on their minds just before Jesus ascended because they asked Jesus in Acts 1-6, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? I mean, this is what they're thinking. They're not looking for a spiritual deliverance. And that's why the Jewish council believes if they can have Jesus put to death, then it will prove to all that Jesus was not the long-awaited Messiah. And so after standing before the council and presumably being found guilty of blasphemy, then they bring Jesus to stand before Pilate, the Gentile Roman governor. And again, this has got to go through them for Jesus to be crucified, which was Rome's form of capital punishment. And after standing before Pilate... Jesus uh, was then led to Herod. Remember all this from last time. He goes from Pilate to Herod, and Herod mocks him, and he sets Jesus as not at naught. He didn't think much of Jesus, but he found no fault in Jesus. And then Herod, he brings Jesus back to Pilate. And that's where we were at when, when we left off here. And I want to read uh, verses 38 through 40 to begin with. And listen, we're just going to jump right in. I'm not going to do a recap of all we've covered leading up to this point. So if you've missed the last couple of weeks, I'd ask you to go back and listen to those so you can get all the details. But let's look at verses 38 through 40 of John chapter 18. The Bible says, Pilate saith unto him, speaking of unto Jesus, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto him, unto them, I find in him no fault at all. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And we've already covered verse 38 last time, but I want you to notice again what we didn't cover there at the very end of that verse. 
Pilate says unto the Jews, I find in him no fault at all. Why is that significant? Well, it should be obvious to you. It's because Christ had to be without sin. He is our sinless sacrifice. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived sinless all 33 and a half years upon this earth in order that He might be our perfect sacrifice. His blood had to be perfect blood. And it was. Amen? And it is only through His blood that we can have our sins washed away. We cannot earn salvation in any way. You cannot be good enough. You cannot be baptized enough. You cannot join church enough. Amen? But you have to go through the blood if you're going to enter into God's kingdom. And so it had to be perfect blood. We were never good enough in the eyes of God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus, the Creator God, who is not bound by time, stepped down from the realms of glory, robed Himself in flesh, which is bound by time, in order for us to have a sacrifice. The Bible says in Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Now get that please. Jesus was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He made Himself lower. He humbled Himself for this purpose, to suffer for you and die. Isn't that a thought? Made Himself lower for the suffering of death. Listen, there was no other way, but Jesus had to go to the cross. It was prophesied. Jesus said it. And I'm saying that because there are those who will try to tell you that somehow crucifixion was plan B because Jesus didn't remove, or God didn't remove some cup from Christ. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was not plan B. It was plan A. Let me rephrase that. God doesn't even need a plan. That's what He was doing. Didn't even have to have a backup just in case. Amen. And so I, I just want to make that clear. But anyway, He had to humble Himself in order to die a violent death for us. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says, But He made Himself of no reputation and took upon Him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And He did so as the perfect, sinless sacrifice of God. Even wicked hands, like Pilate himself, had to admit, there is no fault in Jesus. And if you'll examine Christ this morning, you'll draw the same conclusion. Now what are you going to do with that conclusion? It's what you do with Christ that's critical. You can hate the preacher, you can hate the Baptist move, you can hate this church. What are you going to do with Christ? Will you merely admit that there was no fault in Him or will you receive Him and His free gift of salvation as the only remedy for your sin? Well, we'll see coming into chapter 19 how Pilate handled Jesus maybe next week. But look at verse 39 in verse of chapter 18. But ye have a custom, Pilate says, that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the King of the Jews? So we find that the time frame here, obviously, is Passover week. And this is what led to the custom that Pilate refers to here. He says, ye have a custom, you Jews have a custom, that I would release one unto you during Passover. Passover, remember, was the commemoration of God bringing Israel out from under Egyptian bondage. And every year they would observe this meal in order to reflect upon what God had done for them as a nation. 
And so what had developed in Israel, there was this custom that developed that we were going to release someone who was bound and let them go free, just as God released us from Egypt, that we might go free. We're going to let somebody go free from prison. And this became a symbol of what God had done. And so they had developed this custom. And so Pilate says, but you have a custom. Uh, who should I release unto you? That's where this is coming from. Shall I release unto you the king of the Jews? Well, look at their response in verse 40. Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So imagine this happening, if you can picture all of this in your mind. Here's a man named Jesus that everybody knew. He just went about doing good. He preached the Word of God. He ever taught in the synagogues, he said. I, I've done nothing in secret. I've, I've opened blinded eyes. I've opened deaf ears. I've, I've healed diseases. I've made the lame to walk. I've even raised the dead. And all he ever did was good. And yet, here they are insistent that Jesus not be released. And they asked for Barabbas. What you'll find in Matthew's account is that the chief priests and the elders, they persuaded the multitude. They persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And if you're plugged into what's going on, that kind of sounds similar to what happened recently in our nation. Yeah. Now, who is Barabbas? I think this gets very interesting when we begin to piece all this together. When we think about who Barabbas is, here he's called a robber. In Matthew, he's called a notable prisoner. In Mark 15, 7, it says, And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them, that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And Luke also mentions that Barabbas was seditious and that he was a murderer. Why is that so interesting? Well, let's not forget that one of the main charges that the council has laid against Jesus was that he was a traitor to Rome. They add by saying that He Himself is Christ a King. They're saying, hey, Jesus is saying He's a King, and if He's a King, you know He's going to lead an insurrection. In fact, we'll see in the next chapter that this council will say to Pilate, if thou let this man go, if you let Jesus go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. You see what they're saying? They're saying Jesus Himself said He was a king. And if anybody says they're a king, they're speaking against Caesar. And so they're bringing Jesus before Pilate saying He's guilty of sedition. He's a traitor against Rome. And here we find yet again the immense hypocrisy of this group of people. And now this mob also which has been persuaded to turn against Jesus. They want Jesus dead so bad that they accuse Him of sedition against Rome but get this, who do they want released instead? A man who is actually guilty of sedition against Rome. Does that not show just how much of a farce this whole thing is? Here they are, they're asking for a man who is actually guilty of sedition, even murdered in the process. I find this an interesting turn of events here. And while we know Jesus wasn't guilty of insurrection, isn't it interesting that in their minds, they're just trading one who's not guilty of insurrection for one who is. <laughs> I just find the, the hypocrisy of religion amazing. Amen. And we see it again, how, hypocr how hypocritical this is. And how is it that we would land on this thought today about insurrection? Four years into this study. It seems similar to what we're seeing in America today. 
We have two groups of people diametrically opposed to each other, but only one side is being called out as guilty of insurrection. On one side, there's a group of people that can take over city blocks and call it an autonomous zone. They can set a city on fire, including federal buildings. They can riot and nothing is done about it. If anything, the other side is championing them on. While on, one, on the other side here, we've got a group that can storm the Capitol and they are immediately branded as insurrectionists. Are we just simply choosing one insurrectionist over another? And just a side note, if you'll go to real news sites, you'll get the truth about what happened at the Capitol that day. And I'm not talking Fox News. Now, to be clear, I'm against both actions that took place. I don't think they should have stormed the Capitol, and I sure don't think they should have set a city on fire. But it's almost the same thing as we're seeing here in our text. Here's this angry group of religionists who want one man who was never seditious removed in favor of a man who was actually guilty of sedition. That almost sounds like what's taking place with our presidency. I want this man removed because he's guilty of inciting an insurrection, which he never did, in favor of this other guy who's supposedly going to bring unity and isn't. It's just amazing to me. I would ask if everybody's okay, but I can tell you're not. So I'll leave the rest of that for you to ponder. Amen. So here's this mob, and they're demanding for Jesus to be crucified, and that Barabbas should be released instead. Wait just a moment. They are now going to cry out, we'll see in the next chapter, crucify Him. Here's this group of people and they're saying, which now includes the mob that's been persuaded against Jesus, and they're saying, no, 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 we want Barabbas instead. What happened just a week earlier from our text, back in John chapter 12? Does anybody remember what took place? We have what we call the triumphal entry of Christ. Just a week earlier. Jesus rides in on a donkey, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And as He's riding in, it says, On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet Him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. That was one week earlier. But again, I must make reference that they're looking for earthly deliverance. If you'll study all the accounts closely, listen to what Mark says, Mark 11.10. They say, blessed be the kingdom of our father, David, that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. They were looking for earthly kingdoms here. But just a week earlier, we see the admiration the people had for Jesus. Now tune me in. If you tune me out on the politics, we're going to zero into your kitchen table. We see the admiration the people had for Jesus, but how quickly do we see the multitude changing now that Jesus is on trial? It's amazing how quickly opinions of Christ can change. People will come to Christ when they think He'll feed the multitude for free. Everybody hear what I'm saying? Yeah, we like Christ when He had to sit down on the green grass on the hillside and He took five loaves and two fishes and break them and fed the multitude. We like Jesus then because we're getting the benefits. But how quickly do people abandon Christ when things don't go the way that they want them to? I'll take Jesus when I think that He's going to give me some kind of earthly deliverance. I'll take Jesus so long as He's what I want Him to be. But what happens when life doesn't turn out just the way you wanted it to? What happens when you attend church and read your Bible 
and it doesn't work out the way you wanted it to? What are you going to do when you find out life is still tough even in Christ? Honestly, it's more tough if you'll live godly. But that's a whole other sermon, amen? What happens when life doesn't turn out the way you wanted it to? What happens when you still have marriage problems? What happens when your child still goes astray? What happens when the cupboards are bare? What happens when it doesn't look like the bills will be paid on time? Will Christ still be your king then? Will you be guilty of saying, not this man? Now in here we say, no, I wouldn't do that. But listen, I can tell you, I speak with them and so do you. And you know what I'm talking about. People will say, I don't understand. I read my Bible once. Nothing changed. Oh, I came to church for a few months and nothing changed in my life. I've already tried all that stuff. The day has come upon us when we better know where we stand and with who. Will you stand for Christ and with Christ? Because listen, I want you to understand this morning, Christ is not somebody we try out for a week and at the beginning we say Hosanna and at the end we say crucify Him. It's not just something we try. It's not a test drive. We're not leasing a car. We don't wait and see if Jesus pans out to be who we want Him to be. In John chapter 6, Jesus had explained some difficult doctrine for them to understand. He spoke about Himself being the bread of life which would come down from heaven and how men ought to eat of Christ. And of course, it's still a difficult doctrine today. For we have an entire religion almost built off of transubstantiation which believes you are literally eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ. Well, that's nonsense. And Jesus, He gave this doctrine to them over in John 6 and he, he recognized that they were having problems with it. And so he looks at them and he goes, does this offend you? The Bible says from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? How about you today? Will ye also go away when things get too difficult for you to understand in your life? Or when life doesn't work out like you desired? You see, we need some believers today that are absolutely sold out for Christ. Those who won't be persuaded by the multitude. And you have to be all in. Not just a week later when it looks like, okay, here comes deliverance. What are you going to do now that it doesn't look like deliverance is coming to our nation? What are you going to do now? Will Christ be your king then? Jesus needs to be all in all in your life. It's not that you have God first, family second, work third, however you want to do your list. That's not what all in all means. It means Christ is first. It means family and Christ is in your family. It means your finances, Christ is in your finances. It means work, Christ is in your work. Christ is all and He's in all. And that's what we need today. The Bible says, for those of you in Christ this morning, that He is your shield. He is the horn of our salvation. He's our high tower. He's our refuge. He's our rock. He's our fortress. He's our deliverer. He's our strength. He's our buckler. He's our portion and He's our Savior. 
And we need to say like Peter when the going gets tough, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. So I ask you this morning, is He all you need in your life? Or are you guilty of being a fair-weather Christian? Long as things are going good, you're in. But just as soon as things start getting rough, you jump ship. I want to just encourage people this morning. I know some of you aren't even listening, but I want those who are listening, just sell out for God. Just sell out for God. He's never let me down. It's not that life's been easy. But my God's met all my needs according to His riches and glory. Listen, maybe you're without Christ today. Maybe you're not saved, and that's why you are having a hard time paying attention. Maybe you're without Christ today. Is that why you're bitter against God? Maybe life hasn't turned out like you hoped and you're angry with God. Well, you need to see Christ as the King He really is. Will you see Him as the one who died for your sins? But you have to give yourself to Him. Will you choose Him in the moment of your confusion? Or will you choose another to be released unto you? Not this man. But give me something else. I've tried Christ. I've tried church. And I've tried reading my Bible. You know what? Not this man. You give me something else. So wherever you're at this morning, you do business with God. We're going to pray. We have a couple baptisms scheduled this morning. And so if you'll join me in a word of prayer and then we'll stand together.